Hello, Awaken Beauties. Finally, it's here. The truth to empower women to true inner beauty through a healthy mind and inner biology. I am your hostess, Cassandra Keel, a 20-year salon owner, organic beauty product formulator, positive mind management, and clinical hypnotherapist. And I am here to help you stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Sponsored by evokebeauty.com. EVOQbeauty.com. Now, let's get to it. You know, um, most of the, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a product of the technologies that I teach because most of the, the, the systems and the approaches and the philosophies um, that I share with my students really began as a way for me to solve a problem for myself. Growing up, um, I wasn't, I was, uh, I was the classic bullied kid. Uh, I was born with a very, very oversensitive nervous system. There was a lot of social dynamics. I was socially awkward. I mean, I was, I was just the classic, you know, I was the suboptimal pretty much everything growing up. I don't want to belabor that point, but at some point I realized that if things needed to change, it was going to be up to me to do them. And I became very, very driven to find solutions. I became very, very, uh, I had things I was passionate about, obviously things I wanted to know about like martial arts and metaphysics and how to be cool with women and, you know, all these other things. But, but at the end of the day, um, I just, I didn't have anybody to teach me. I didn't, and I didn't, I, I couldn't figure out what was the, you know, what was the real stuff? What was the, what were the materials and the, and the trainings and the tactics and the principles that really, um, moved me forward and allowed me to become someone, the person I wanted to be rather than the person that everything around me was conspiring to make me. And so I spent years looking for solutions. You know, I, I studied martial arts to, to build my self-confidence, my self-esteem, but mostly so I could kick butt and take names and, and uh, make sure that I was never going to be bullied again. And, and that was uh, the start for me. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to encounter people who kind of pulled back the curtain on the stuff that was or the material and the information that was available to the general public versus what was going on behind the scenes. And, and they showed me how to reverse engineer and explore things and ask the right kinds of questions. And I, I, I started to find little bits and pieces here and there. I study a system here and I see one or two solid, what I call radioactive gold nuggets, right? The, the one or two pieces of information that made a tremendous, tremendous difference um, in creating results. And over time I started, you know, after running thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours, uh, researching and discussing and, 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 and really testing things. I looked when I stopped and I looked at this little bag of gold nuggets that I discovered. And I realized something that they weren't exactly nuggets. They were actually like Legos and that you could put them together in various combinations to create successes in various forms of life. And so, you know, uh, I run a clinic now. Uh, I've ran a clinic since 2005 where I specialize in treating physical illness that has as its roots repressed emotion. But if you'd have told me 30, 40 years ago that I'd be in a room eight hours a day, you know, five days, seven days a week, 
helping other people fix their stuff and get over their stuff, I'd have laughed at you. It just simply wasn't on my radar. I was very focused on, you know, being cool, kicking butt and, uh, and meeting, meeting cool chicks. And as I started finding the answers to those situ- those, uh, those applications, I started realizing there was something much deeper and much more pervasive going on. There was a higher force at work, so to speak, guiding me to study these processes deeper and deeper. And I began to notice how they all began to dovetail and work synergistically with each other. And so um, lo and behold, several years later, I discovered that many of the problems that I had growing up, um, many of my students and, and my colleagues and my peers had, and I started sharing these solutions I'd come up with, with them and they started getting real world results too. And so that's kind of how our systems evolved and, and where we're going with them today is we just want to reach more people and give things to people that they can just take out into the world and use. You know, um, growing up, I used to hear you had to believe in yourself. You had to do that. You had to believe this. You had to believe that. Well, there are certain things that are true that work, whether you believe in them or not. And I like to start there. I think it's, I think belief systems are important, but I also think that there are certain things that can be distilled down to just a simple set of mechanics that if all the principles are in place, if you just do it, you don't have to believe it, you'll still manufacture a result. And so a lot of the systems that we teach and a lot of the things we've explored and we continue to explore and research are, are built around one specific thing, getting you the result you came for, whether you believe you can do it or not. And then we teach you how to change your belief systems and we change you how to, you know, build yourself, um, you know, reprogram your subconscious mind, read people, understand persuasion and influence tactics, how to use the law of attraction. These are all systems that started out as a way for me to solve a problem. And we discovered that when we started applying this and sharing it with other people, they started having amazing results in their life too. So there are systems and then there's the things we share with the public and there's the theory that makes it all that, that puts it all together. But it really started out um, as my personal journey to, to become more empowered, to stop being the bullied kid, to stop being socially awkward, to understand how people think and feel and communicate so that I could predict what they were going to do or, with the greatest probably know who the, to the energetics and the, and the metaphysics and the law of attraction. And, and it just, I started to find all these, these parallels and, and dovetails and crossroads of all these different disciplines until eventually what I thought were a handful or even two handfuls of separate studies and disciplines actually became one thing, just like the proverbial elephant where the, with the three blind men where, you know, one man's feeling the trunk and one blind man's feeling the ear and another one's feeling the tail. And they all think they're describing something different when in reality, it's just a different piece of the same animal. And so what re- what's emerged for us and what we lovingly call Planet David is a system, a system that allows you to generate the results you want in the vast majority of areas that you want to generate. And so uh, that being said, hopefully your, your microphone is, is up and running and uh, I've given you some background on, on uh, where my head's at and where I plan on going. That's so, so wonderful. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you very well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, David. I mean, truly, truly, you are self-mastery. You know, mastery is a, it's a sensitive word to me because I don't believe we always, I mean, ultimately master everything. But 
you know, how I think everybody has this personal journey, right? I know I've had my personal journey of having to wield everything and put the puzzle pieces together for myself, but it goes to a whole new level when you're able to put the puzzle pieces together and then hand the magic over to another practitioner to transform the ripple effect. And how you've done that is, it is truly self-mastery because you put in the time and the effort and the discipline you know, and how many years you've been doing this, you're still on the road, you're still doing webinars each week. And for those that don't know, if you go to David's YouTube channel, he has, how many videos do you have up to this point, David? That we've, re that we've released to the public is around 234 last time I looked, and that was like a couple of months ago. But there's about another 234 that we haven't released. And that's just, and that's not counting all of our archived like mastermind videos, AMAs, things of that nature. So we've got, I would say probably we're, we're right around 250, give or take. Yeah. And, you know, the amount of effort that goes into that, David, is, is no small feat. So I just want to thank you because, you know, in a time of information overload and cognitive overload, you know, when I can tap into your videos, it's a different experience. It's freeing. You get actual tactical concepts that a layperson or a practitioner to start pick up right away. So I love that you don't hold so tight to your chest, that you're really truly a transformational coach, um, practitioner, and thought leader. So there's a, uh, a friend of ours on, on Clubhouse that used this analogy one time, and it kind of taps into NLP a little bit and how we can use the VAKOG, VACOG um, kind of experience, the somatic experience of how we can kind of light up all the neural pathways, light up the body. Um, and she, she had noted, you know, that uh, the brain processes, as we know in NLP, 400 billion bits of information a second, and that we're only able to be aware of 2,000 of those. So what I wanted to kind of open up with is really kind of this eddy current, like I, I like to say, that's this eddy current of spinning, and we have to find the access points to allow that eddy current to kind of enter into this sense of flow, right, to clear away so that we can heal. And I love how she had the analogy is that imagine if you went to a buffet and you had 2 billion pieces of food, mm -hmm. but you could only fit 126 items on the plate. Mm -hmm. So you process and go back, right? So this is the kind of negative bias. And you go back to the buffet and say, hey, all of this food just freaking sucks, but you still mm -hmm. choose the liver and onions. And then you eat the liver and onions and you wake up the next day and eat from the shitty diet. And that's really kind of how the brain is until we can start to interrupt those patterns of beliefs, habits, and structures in our life. And you have so many ways that you can do this, but I thought it would open up just this beautiful conversation around uh, how you've discovered some of this work through Bet Bomb and how you've developed it in your own special way about the somatic search engine. Maybe you could go into that with us. Okay. Well, to, to lead into Brent's work, uh, I have to kind of jump back. I started, I started training with Brent, or I, uh, my introduction to HMR, uh, started back in, I think it was uh, maybe 2015, 2016, give or take. Um, it's, been, it's been a little while. Um, but we have to go back a little bit further to about 2005. 2005, I was in Deland, Florida, at a hypnotherapy training with uh, the late and great Jerry Kahn. And uh, it was during a break, uh, and there was this very, very attractive young lady from Canada that I really wanted to impress. <laughs> and she, she was basically, she was just standing there hanging out. She was, I've got this, the worst headache. And I got this download, like right in the middle of this break, 
at the, at the training, right? Now, some of you have heard of the energy spinning technique that I use. Some of you haven't. You know, we can talk about it later. But anyway, uh, and you'll find it, you'll understand why it's relevant in a minute. But I got this download and I said, look, I said, point to where you feel it. And she goes, what? She goes, I said, point to where you feel it. And so she points to where she feels it. And she go, now, now look at, now close your eyes and look at it with your inner eyes. And she look, closes her eyes. She goes, now notice there's a color connected to that feeling. What's the color? First impression goes, she goes, she goes red. I said, excellent. Reach and grab all that red energy. Take it out and hold it in your hands in front of you. Make sure you get it all, right? And she goes, and let me know when you got it all. And she, she starts. She reaches in, she grabs all this red energy, like instant transinduction right there. And right, and she's looking at it. I said, notice did the color change or stay the same? First impression. She goes, it's the same. I said, excellent. Notice it's moving. Notice it's spinning in a certain direction. What direction is it spinning? She goes, it's spinning this with Kristen. Grab it with both of your hands. Make it the opposite of what it was. Now double the spin, double the speed, double the force, double the magnitude. Keep doubling it over and over and over again until it takes on a life of its own, until it's impossible for it to go back the way it was. When you know you've got it, slam it back into that spot. She slams it in, she breaks out in this massive sweat and her headache goes completely away. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, she's like, oh my God, it's gone. I go, bye, right? And I run off because uh, hey, she's, she's, uh, she's an attractive woman and right, breaks right. over and right. But what was interesting, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll cut to the chase, is that one download that I got from the universe became the Rosetta Stone for an understanding of how, of this, what we call, what I call holographic memory theory. And I, I began to build my systems and really start to spend years unpacking that one simple process that seems to put a dent, if not completely eradicate anything you throw it at. Um, and I spent years building a system out of that. And then in 2015, um, I started hearing these rumors about a guy named Bill Bankston. And Bill Banks, because people would come into my trainings, and they say, you know what, a lot of what you say sounds a lot like Bill Bankston. And I'm like, well, he must be brilliant then. He sounds like me, right? But, uh, uh, but, I, but it's like, I kept hearing Bill Bankston, Bill Bankston, Bill Bankston over and over and over again. And I'm like, after, and I have this rule of three, right? If I get the same information from three different sources yeah. in, a timely, in a timely period, that's where I need to go next. Yeah. And so I went to this website out of, based out of Chicago and I looked for Bill Bankston when the next training was. I was getting ready to travel. Turns out he's going to be in San Diego three weeks from that day. So it's like, oh. So I go to this training and I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase once again. Amazing stuff. I still use his stuff today. In fact, it's become one of our most powerful methodologies that I learned from Bill. But in that training, I was introduced to another guy named Brent Baum. And the more oh, I, I don't heard know of, this part of this story, wow! Talk uh, about synchronicity. Bernadette Doran, that Bernadette Doran, who who uh, but I don't I don't I don't know if they're still in business now because I think COVID might have wiped them out or they're trying to come back. But Bernadette Doran, who ran uh, Equilibrium Energy and Education out of Chicago, she ran a metaphysical bookstore and she held classes there. But the only people she would allow to teach there were people who were coming from an evidence based discipline. Awesome. So if you didn't have any kind of studies behind what you were doing, you weren't going to teach there. So there was Reiki, there was uh, Bill Bankston's work, there was pranic healing. She does a lot with uh, biometric devices like aura scanners and things like that, the Karatkov methods and things of that nature. Right. And so I met Bernadette at, at Bill's, Bill's seminar here in San Diego, and she starts telling me about Brent Baum's work. And I'm like, that sounds really cool and really similar to some of the things I'm doing with spinning. And so I bought all the books 
And I started practicing what I got in the books and I started using them with clients and it started working like gangbusters. Like, holy cow, Batman, we're, we're, we're drawn from the same sources. And then I went and I finally pointed up the money and I went to, to Chicago and I started training with Brent and I realized much to my chagrin and astonishment that everything I thought I was, I, I, I thought I was doing the way Brent was doing it was completely wrong. Really? <laughs> in other words, I'd interpreted his work one way, but when he, and, and, and he, it was all the same principles, but when he would do it, he had slightly, his, his techniques took a slightly different form than what I interpreted from his book still worked. So I started doing Brent's way and it was awesome. And I learned even more from Brent. Um, but what really, what it really drove home for me was this concept of human beings as holographic information processing systems much like white light passing through a prism yep. and is broken up and refracted yep. through the facets of that prism, human beings, their levels of consciousness, the inner layers of their energy body pass information the same way. Mm -hmm. And so I started to get this idea that, okay, human beings are holograms. And it's not a new concept. The Chinese had a version of this. I'm a doctor of Chinese medicine. The Chinese had this concept of a holographic human being, but they didn't have the language that we have. They didn't have the terminology. So they used what they had, the, the language of the environment, nature, and things of that nature, of, of like that. And so it's this, this, this idea started to gel inside of me that, okay, human beings are just processing data, period. And, and, and it's processing data from one system to another, and the only challenge is interpretation. And so that kind of fed into the face reading because you were asking me about face reading. Mm -hmm. Where when, when you look at somebody's face, the Chinese have a, this, this system of facial diagnosis that's very big part of Chinese medicine. And they can look at your face and tell you what's going on with your kidneys, your liver, your spleen, your stomach, your large intestine, your small intestine. But it gets even deeper. They can look at emotions. They can look at repressed emotions. They can look at trauma history. It gets really weird, but it's still true. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that my teacher, uh, Lillian Bridges, who is the world's leading authority on face reading, said that when you, when you find a facial feature, like a marking or a wrinkle that's connected to a trauma, and you unpack that wrinkle, or you unpack that trauma, that wrinkle disappears, or the facial architecture changes because, wait for it, the human body's a hologram. So I've got all of this information saying the same thing, and now we're starting to see effects and, and producing effects and phenomena. So Brent gave me, uh, there are three levels to HMR and each one deals with progressively deeper and higher levels of trauma. And it gets to the point where you can eventually just batch remove 20, 30, 40 memories in one process, um, as well as entity work and things of that nature. So in, in terms of, and it really is, you know, revolutionary. It's, it's a, it's a, I would say it's a derivative of, of Ericksonian hypnosis and NLP, but there's not a lot of NL, uh, NLP is jargon. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's really a form of energy psychology. And it allows you to very, very easily find and remove these holographic imprints that are caused by trauma, disease, or the trauma is actually causing the disease. Right. And you're able to unpack it down to its attributes and, and really very, very powerfully remove these things, even if you're not a good hypnotic subject. In fact, the best part about HMR is it's, you can literally start a process, stop the process halfway through, have a conversation, pick up the process where you left off and just continue to wipe the stuff out. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it really took the work I was doing to a, a, a much deeper level 
and a much more user-friendly level because now we no longer had to worry about things like depth of trance, who was a good subject, who wasn't. All that really mattered was that the person was willing to follow the instructions. As well as probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but probably as well as, you know, I find that a lot of um, hypnotists um, kind of stay away from deep, deep, deep work. Um, yes, on the On the fear, I think a lot of the time of themselves being able to work somebody to the end of the result if they have really bad ab reactions. Now, I've had a lot of ab reactions, um, you know, and ab reactions could be extreme laughter. It could be, you mm. know, someone breaking down and, and crying or hysteria. But what I love about the work and how you blend it and in some of Brett's work is after I've studied is that, um, you know, most people will not do the deep work because they don't want to feel the pain. They don't want to go back to the trauma. And a lot of the time it's part, it's partitioned and um, particulated into the body that they don't even remember, even know how to access or remember the memories because of that glitch that you talk about from, you know, that T9 to T10 experience where the consciousness literally goes off the radar and then it's, it blocks it and stores it in a dormant memory into the field of the body. Um, and you and I have discussed it, you know, I do a lot of super conscious work. And so I remove resistance in the field. So I just thought it would be good to kind of weave in there that we have dormant memories and different energy inputs, you know, the language of the body. And that's how I love how you, you basically created this on-ramp and off-ramp of these dormant memories in a very, very non threatening way for someone to go through it um, through the somatic body experience. But uh, I just kind of wanted to kind of open that up a little bit more with the holographic memory resolution, because it works a lot with the language of the body. The body doesn't understand words and concepts that we oh, it up, but it knows colors. It knows the feelings. That's how you unlock those pieces. And that's why when you use that color piece and then found Brett and all these other experiences, you're like, yeah, I'm speaking the language of the body. Absolutely. And that's, that's really the, the crux of the dilemma or the, the, the cornerstone of everything right. is that, you know, when we talk about energetics and, and things of that nature, what we're really talking about is really two concepts. And again, I'm going to use unrelated terminology, but we're talking about information. And we're talking about a medium. So think of a DVD that's imprinted with a certain message, right? right. The DVD player doesn't really care what's on the DVD as long as what's on the DVD is written in a language the player can play. Right. Right. And so the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, and all the subtler aspects of the nervous system, that's really all it cares about. And so what, what came from this study was a series of concepts that I call uh, um, body-centered energy psychotherapy. And, and there's a certain, and, and one of the things you kept asking me to talk about was this concept called the somatic search engine. And I'm happy to talk about that, but I'd like to throw in a few other somatic issues in there well and one of the things that that um we talk about in our system is what we as a concept we lovingly tongue-in-cheek call point and click therapy yeah and what that means is is that for every emotion or trauma or belief system that you create or you embody you in other words you have it contained in your body first of all every single one of those is built from the same five building blocks i often tease my students with a kind of pseudo trick question i say what are thoughts made out of and I get energy and I get feelings and I get this, that, and the other thing. And I say, well, you're almost right. They're all great answers, but they're wrong. Functionally speaking, your thoughts are built out of five primary channels of information, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory distinctions. 
So you have big channels and subdistinctions within that channel that form the alphabets and the consonants of all of our experiences. Which when opens up NLP premises of VACOG. It's, it's well, NLP actually got it from, I think it was either from Satir. Okay. I think it was Virginia Satir that she got, they, that they got that from. But got the it. idea, but the problem with NLP, and it's, it's not really a problem, it was, it's great for what, it, it gave us a, a tool for exploring other things. And that's one thing that a lot of people kind of miss yep. when, they, when they look at NLP is, yeah, they have great techniques for influence and communication and great ways to model. But NLP was really the result of an attitude and a methodology of exploration, yep. of asking questions, paying attention to things that most people don't pay attention to consciously and unconsciously that the person who's really excelling at something isn't. Right. And, and so we've lost, a lot of us have lost, a lot of modern practitioners and even some of the old schoolers have kind of lost that. Um, but and I think I would if, say if, even with that, David, sorry for interrupting. It's kind of like, um, you know, you can master NLP practices, but it's, it's like just like the premises of cracking open all of these different experientials of how the body mm -hmm. stores, experiences, all of these things. It, it, you know, it's not a communication technique. It's the gateway to the rest of the things and yeah. how you communicate with the body. Yeah. The genius behind NLP is, 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 is uh, it's, it, you don't even have to mention, it's, it's, it almost doesn't even need to be stated. Um, if you truly understand what, what's behind it. But NLP gave us a tool. It gave us a tool to explore the full spectrum of human experience, cognition and consciousness, subjective and objective experience. Right. And one of the things that, that where NLP kind of stopped short, even though the founders explored these things, it stopped short at a, a, um, acknowledging or recognizing that these visual and auditory and kinesthetic distinctions that we use to create our internal memories and our thoughts and our beliefs and even the disease processes in our body. That's my belief Totally. that these things have a vibrational correlation. They have a vibrational phenomenality to them that can be manipulated through changing this coding system. And so when we started adding that in and, and seeing the, the, the human being as a hologram, we were able to start to make some really powerful uh, distinctions that allowed us to shorten the, the time it takes for intervention. Like for example, for every single thought, uh, belief, or experience you have, there's going to be a holographic container built of VAKOG. I've shown you that little diagram that I created. That's kind of my conception of it. Yeah. But what happens is when that, that memory is triggered, there's going, it's going to manifest pre-consciously and then consciously from a specific location inside of the body. We call that location a somatic address. And then everything human, you see, everything human beings do is in response to a feeling. It's either a feeling they want more of or a feeling they want a whole lot less of. So the moment you find where the feeling emanates from, where all that information is being reconsolidated, reconstructed, and expressed, you now have a node, a crossroads, where all of that information can be accessed simultaneously, no matter where it is lodged in the body. And because you can access it all simultaneously, any change you make at that spot will generalize outward through the entire body and the entire field. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we call it point and click therapy, because the theory is if you can point to where you feel it, you can change it. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, and, and if I maybe express it in this way, you know, when you get to the root of something, right, it's somewhat the same in hypnotherapy. When you get to the core, uh, quote unquote, sensitizing event, you know, the, 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 um, 
trickle down effect of that. And then what was stacked on top of that, you can collapse all of that at once. Now there's still fragments there, right? That need healing and, and processing. But the same thing I would say with the somatic address is that once you can unlock that one piece and then the whole hologram of the body is then able to shift and mm -hmm. come back into alignment, harmony, etc. Yes. And, and one of the things that, that, you know, again, Brent, Watching Brent work and, and seeing how he did, they cemented so many things for me that I'd been doing clinically and, and I had worked theoretically and, and with some other technique. So it was really, you know, a, I, I can't recommend Brent's work enough. He's, he's really, you know, um, if you do trauma work, if our, our addictions work, yeah. um, he, it's worth the investment and the time and energy to go and, 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 and learn directly from him. Obviously, we have variants that we do. Um, but yeah, so the somatic address is where everything starts. And then we have to understand that there's this thing we call somatic engagement. And this is what was one of the big things that kind of happened for us in our system. Because we discovered that the biggest piece, functionally, materially speaking, of the subconscious mind is the body itself. Mm -hmm. But when, when most hypnotists or trance workers work with a client, the, the largest part of their subconscious mind basically looks like this. Right, they're they're just quite quiescent and vegetative in the chair. Totally. But what we found out was, if you can get people to engage their interoceptive neurology, yes. that internal set of feelings and sensations, with the field outside of them. Now, I call it the proprioceptive grid. You may call it the aura. You may call it their field. Whatever you want to call it. But if you can get them to actually create multiple sources of connection through the soma, through the body, to that field. Now, any change you make out here automatically emphasize changes the body and so it becomes very very cyclical so one of the things we discovered is that when the, the neurology creates these holographic containers sometimes they're just a color sometimes there's a size a shape a weight a texture um, and once you elicit all of that information um, you can manipulate it and once you start manipulating it you change what the body how the body expresses that container and so okay let's stop right there because mm -hmm. You always make fun of me and I make fun of myself because I'm like getting this proprioceptive verbiage mm -hmm. down and I, I know it, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of break down the simplicity and correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. Proprioceptive mm -hmm. is, let's say that somebody is looking at the video. It's like the planes, right? You have the planes, mm -hmm. right? Up, down, and then front of the body, back of the body. So what he's talking about, if you can access from the front of the body, the proprioceptive is the things out in front of you that you experience. Mm -hmm. Interoceptive, and say that word and make sure I'm saying it correctly. Interoceptive. Interoceptive is, now is that going to be an internal state or is that going to be kind of just what's behind? And interoception begins with in. It's always internal. In inner. Okay. Right. And, and there's going to be two levels of interoception that you're going to deal with. You're going to deal with conscious interoception and, and pre-conscious interoception. Got it. And so uh, there will be feelings and, and sensations that happen interoceptively that you will never become consciously aware of. Yeah. Okay. You know, the human body, for example, is 70% water, right? Yep. Now, have you ever tried to carry a bucket of water across a room? Uh, yeah, I do when I water my plants. And that right. maybe. You, that you ever notice that shit? You ever notice that shit? That shit sloshes a little bit. Sloshes. Right? Why don't we slosh when we walk? Well, the truth is we do. But your interoceptive nervous, inter nervous system filters out all of the jiggling and sloshing of your internal organs because you don't need to know about it. 
But when you encounter a situation or circumstance that is of importance to the, uh, on the outside, there's a subtle shift inside. The neurology creates, uh, it starts to process the information. It looks for a context to go with the new sensation. And the moment it finds one, it links them together. And on all of a sudden you have an obvious body feeling that we call an emotion. Mm-hmm. So the best book to research for, for that whole theory of the theory of constructive emotions talks about interoception, things of that nature is actually a book called how emotions are made. And mm-hmm. I believe uh, the author's name is Barrett. Yep. Um, it's, it's a, a little book. technical. It's a little dry, but um, if you want to understand aspects of this holographic system, it's a great place to go. Um, you don't so need to know all that. So the interoceptive, mm-hmm. interoceptive inner being, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could we always, could we, we, could we possibly equate it to how the subconscious mind keeps our heart moving or our heart beating or coordination is memorized. It just kind of keeps the body in, in working memory so that it can just stay, stay moving where then you, you may hit that emotion, right? You, um, hit the glitch and the whole mm-hmm. body is activated with that emotion. And even though sometimes you don't know why, sometimes you may, um, that's the glitch that comes in when, when the interoceptive is just kind of working through your day because it's a, well, the, the interoceptive works, works very, very integratively with all the other aspects of your, your autonomic nervous system. But the, the ones that they're there, when we look at proprioception, which is that big word that everybody stumbles over, I just say that it's just a, it's just a really fancy way of saying time and space. Okay. Uh, because, you know, if there was, if, if, and again, in the, we have some very spiritual, very heart centered people on this podcast. So this idea of, of you are more than your body is not a, a hard leap for any of us. Right. right. But, you know, taking it from more hard science to, well, does it exist or doesn't it? If such a thing as this, a sixth sense existed, Which it, does. It, would be, it, would, it would be your proprioceptive nervous system, but it wouldn't be your sixth sense. Right. It would be your sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh sense, because there are at least six channels of information yep. that are five, or five to six channels of information, probably more, that we know scientifically that that division of your autonomic nervous system monitors, one of which is electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. So when you get too close to a, a monitor and you feel your hair rise and, and you feel the, the feelings or you get under a power line and, and all of a sudden, you, that's all proprioception, right? If you reach into your pocket and there's an object in your pocket, the part of you that doesn't, you know, and you don't remember what's in your pocket, the part of you that can recognize just by touch what's in your pocket is your proprioception, right? Your mechano, it also monitors mechanoreception and nociception, which is mechanoreception is how your body is, is actually mechanically moving, right. which is very important in, in some of the change work, and which is kind of, when I close this loop, you'll understand. Um, and then there's nociception, which is pain sensation in your body. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different channels of information that are being coordinated and, and presented to us symbolically in a way that we can understand and relate to through what I call the primary encoding system, which is the visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory. Because that is the system that is primary to everything except the actual experience of something. When we encounter something in the world, in the vibrational universe, we have that experience. It's immediately translated through the aperture of the five senses into five channels of information, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory. Smaller distinctions within that channel are made. Those are recombined to create an internal representation of what just, you know, we get T-boned by a car. Okay, there's the actual T-boning of, the, of us by the car. And then there's the memory, 
we have of it, the subjective experience. And it's the subjective experience that does most of the damage over time. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not about what happened to you that's the issue. It's about the way you've recorded and encoded it and the way you're relating to that recording and that encoding. And that, that container is broken up into tiny bits like a cloud server that breaks up data and spreads it all over the body. And when you encounter a situation or circumstance that is relevant to that experience, the call goes out to all those bits of data and boom, that data is reconsolidated and it emanates as a feeling from a specific location. Right. Now, because of the mechanoreceptive aspect and because most of the things that you're we're talking about happen pre-consciously, if you want to create a change that they consciously can't fight, that they know, because if you're a hypnotist, you're always dealing with this idea of resistance, right? Yep. If you can get the body to act out the change, it won't matter what the conscious mind won't believes because it will actually overwrite the conscious resistance to the process. So right. we call that somatic engagement because mm -hmm. the moment we can visualize what we want, we can and physically interact with the construct. We get the body moving in some way. And when you go back and you, you look at my YouTube channel or the videos we have on Instagram or whatever, and pretty much there's almost no just passive technique. They're always, the, the, the client is always doing something. They're reaching out and touching something. They're shrieking it down. They're moving it behind them. They're crumpling it up, throwing it in a fire. They're actively somatically engaged because what happens is when you actually use the body that way, all of the divisions of the nervous system start to interconnect and communicate synergistically towards a common goal and you get a much more powerful degree of change faster because all the all the systems are speaking the same language you mentioned earlier you autonomic nervous system doesn't speak english it doesn't speak any spoken language it speaks that that visual auditory kinesthetic olfactory gustatory primary encoding language and so the moment the moment we get the client using systolics, they can't help but change because the human body does not resist itself. Yeah. So, and going back to example, you know, grabbing, pulling out the color, right? Mm -hmm. so you're going back to the dormant memory. You can find mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, you got pain in your knee. You're going to go to the knee. You're going to pull it out, pull out the color, mm -hmm. um, you know, engage with how it's, how it is out in front of the proprioceptive body, take it at, take control of it and then start to basically inverse the energy of it right so yeah. you're you're literally deconstructing it within seconds yeah. of a time uh so that it's removed from the body and it's so fun to watch people on all your videos and i've done some of these practices with you mm -hmm. as well in fact here's a here's a fun story i had a client um text me last night and and she's a client of mine we've been processing a lot and she hasn't really quite gotten into trance yet she's a little bit right. nervous about doing that so i texted her mm -hmm. the spinning exercise Oh, cool. And she, she told me this morning, she says, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. And then further questions on how to unlodge some of the other things. But she goes, so I went and learned about it. And I didn't ask her whose video I said, but I'm pretty sure she went and found your <laughs> videos on YouTube. But, um, you know, that's, that's why I love a lot of the work that you do. And what I've always loved about your work is that I'm very much an energetic. Um, I'm not a healer. I'm an energetic practitioner that helps people take back their energy, bring back harmony 
harmony into the energy and, and going back to dis-ease, like you said, you know, the more dormant these memories are. And oh, by the way, listeners, you know, we have to understand that it, there's no shame in these processes. There's no shame in, in feeling the pain. There is inquisitive questioning, self-awareness of where did it come from. And a lot of times we forget that we are, you know, basically projecting and we have, I take the responsibility of what is my seven generations, eight generations in the past that we know now is documented. And what you have explained and what you share is that when you make that one movement, right, when you start to shift the energy and you start to see the exchange and how the facial expressions then denote it over time, you also have projected the energy ahead. Yes. Right. So it's kind of like the Taurus field on how, you know, it's, let's just imagine it's going in the wrong direction and then you put it in the right direction and it actually exchanges energy on both sides. So it's far more important and huge and um, incredible than I think people really truly understand when you get to the energetic Mm -hmm. pinpoint. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, um, the Chinese, when it comes to the face reading side, they say that when you clear something that way, you don't just clear it nine, like nine generations forward. You clear it nine generations back. Yes. So uh, one of the fastest, and people ask me, what can I do to help my children? I said, clean up your own shit. Yep. The, the best thing you can do for your kids right now is fix everything that needs fixing in you. Don't mm-hmm. try to fix your kids, fix you. Because the moment you fix, if, if, it's, if it's something that's lineal, and, and either vibrationally or genetic, there's going to be a ripple effect, right? Um, and so, yeah. I, I, I'm a hundred percent behind what you said, and, and, but it goes, it goes both ways. And it can actually, it's, it's very weird because people can inherit traits from aunts and uncles who pass on and all of a sudden they get their, they get their, uh, their talents and their traits. Sometimes it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting because mm-hmm. it's not always, there's a genetic resonance, obviously because they're related, but it's passed vibrationally. Exactly. Field. And that's, that's always interesting to see that happen. Yeah, I think it's far more, you know, I think vibrations work into the epigenetics, right? Mm-hmm. If everything starts as energy, it's just, it's just how it's, it's exchanged in, in 3D information, right? And it's always exchanged in the field of super conscious information. And so, you know, I just think that self-knowledge and understanding these elements are one of the first pieces, but then actually going in and doing the deeper work can, can happen so much faster than people believe, which we'll go into about, you know, the self-development industry and how it oftentimes keeps us stuck, whether we're too in the head and intellectual, like I was for so many years, working harder, pushing harder until I actually helped, you know, came to self-awareness of like, cool, like I'm good. I don't need to fix myself. I just kind of have to unlodge what we just discussed mm-hmm. on the shit I was carrying, right? And then the yeah. things I picked up and then I doubled down on just trying to work harder to get rid of it versus the inverse of what we're talking about here. So to kind of thread this along and then we'll jump into that, I thought it would be really fun for us to talk a little bit about the face mapping. Now, as you know, I've owned a salon for 22 years. And so I've got a lot of women that will get in my chair and they'll go like this. Oh my God. I'm getting so old and I changed the conversation right away and flip the, flip the, flip the quantum language, but maybe we could go through and I kind of had a little bit of list. So I kind of want you to help us. We'll get into it, but I want to go over the 11s. I want to go over the sorrow and sadness. Um, You also talk about the purpose lines descending the crow lines mm-hmm. um and then the uh where we hold our bitterness in the lips so maybe you can kind yep. of share a little bit of new perspective on anti-aging okay so um 
are, is this a, are, are your, are your, your subscribers going to be viewing this? So could yeah, if I put a picture, they'd be okay sure. with that? Yeah, that, okay. I was hoping that you would pull that out because it's such a great- sure, let me uh, let me see if I can find it really quick. I was kind of, I knew we were going to talk about it a little bit, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure when we would talk about it. So I didn't get a chance to pull it up. So give me just a second to, to find that and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, and just kind of give a little bit of a preframe. You know, David has experience both, you know, so much depth in Chinese medicine, but, um, you know, I know that he's done some advanced work and kind of gone into deeper work with the um, face mapping that it's not just, you know, the way I've integrated in the past and I've done a lot of blog posts on it on, on exchange of how your kidneys and, and how they can really look at the internal body and the organ systems, the meridians and things of that nature where the chi gets stuck, but this is kind of at a different level. Sure. Can I, uh, do I have permission to share screen? You should, but let's go ahead and uh, make sure that you do. How's that? Um, make us host. There we go. Yep. Okay, cool. All right. So um, you wanted to talk about, let me just make sure, because I want to cover those first, because obviously we don't have time to do every single thing. So you wanted to talk about this area? Yeah. This area? Yes. And this area. Yeah. Okay. So for those that uh, are, are most of your subscribers uh, and, and listeners, are they uh, clinicians or are they just looking to be more beautiful and healthy? <laughs> uh, I would probably say B, but as we know, we have a really awesome group of. of yeah. And the reason I say this, cause I'll use different language depending on who I'm talking to. Yeah. Let's talk so, to layman. Okay. Um, so first and foremost, one of the most important areas of the face, when we look at, at, at facial architecture, first of all, a lot of these things you'll only see on one side. So for example, um, we look at something like mania mm -hmm. right? and think, and, and people think because it's only on this side of this, of the face that it doesn't appear over here. Right. It, uh, most of these traits are bilateral. They can be on either side of the face. One of the things, one of the first distinctions that you want to make though, when you start to, to really look at and unpack these emotions is which side of the face are they actually on? Mm -hmm. The right side of the face represents your public persona. This is the face you show the world. Cool. And depending on the application that you're in, like if you're in the workplace, you may want to talk more to a person's public mask than you do to their private mask. Mm -hmm. But who are they when nobody's looking? Who are they behind closed doors? That can be seen on the left side of the face. And this is your personal side or your private side. I'm gonna just put a text box in here, right? And one of the things that we wanna look at when we start to, to measure, we start to measure um, severity or, or, or see where, where the intentions are, right? Uh, so this is, your, this is your private side, right? Your private mask, who you are when nobody's looking, when the lights are out, the doors are locked, that kind of thing. One of the things we want to look at when we start to evaluate facial architecture or facial markings is length and depth. The longer the marking, the, 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 the more intense, the, 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 the deeper it is, the longer they've had it. So if you see someone who's really, really marked deeply on their private side, you know that they've got a lot more stuff going on there than they're showing to the world or that affects them publicly. So these are just some real quick, um, you know, for, for people who want to look at, learn to look at their own faces and other people's faces, you can see who someone really is by looking through your left eye at their left side of their face. So um, going back to, to this, the, the first area we want to talk about um, 
well, actually, normally when I do it, I do clockwise, but since you started with the center of the face, that's where we're gonna start. Uh, and this area is actually one of the most important areas of the face to unpack. Now, uh, right in the center, right in this area, we call the glabella. If you, if you uh, for those of you who are estheticians or have a little bit of medical background. We call them is, the 11s. Okay, perfect. There's, <laughs> there's two or three markings that can show up here that will tell you a lot about what's going on. Now, if that area is very fleshy, by the way, yeah. it's usually indicative of someone who's got a lot of repressed guilt or regret. So if there's a lot of flesh in that area, mm -hmm. chances are they've got a lot of stuff that they've been holding on to that they're kind of ashamed of or feel guilty about. But one of the things that's very common is, is this, as you say, the 11s. Yep. This 11 marking almost always indicates someone who uh, has a tendency to be irritable, impatient, and has a lot of annoyance. Mm -hmm. Well, they spend a lot of time in the California sun in traffic, right? Which is basically an out tantamount to the same thing. And what's, so, what's interesting is every now and then you'll, you'll meet somebody who has not two lines. They'll actually have three. Oh, interesting. And what that usually indicates is this person has actually learned to manage their temper. They can actually, they actually have a, they, they have a, they had a, a significant raise in consciousness that they now have the ability to manage that impatience or that annoyance and that frustration. You don't see that nearly as often as you see the 11, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is always uh, interesting. Now, Another thing that you want to look at, you can look at here. And again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go be, is, and this is the final one that we're going to talk about. I could spend, I could spend a day on, on this one area of the face. Sometimes you'll see someone who has just one big line or one small line right down the center. The Chinese call this marking suspended needle. If it's bigger, they call it suspended sword. I've had, I've seen people with lines in the center of their forehead so big. I call them the suspended bazooka. <laughs> or the freaking unicorn. And what this usually, what this usually entails, uh, let me go back to my text box, is estrangement between father and son. Interesting. And that estrangement can go um, either, you know, it can be from the father towards the son, or it could be some from the son towards the father. However, there's some other things behaviorally and vibrationally that this marking represents that are really, really important to understand in terms of law of attraction and moving forward in life. Mm. When you see someone with this marking, what it, it, it almost always relates to father issues or whoever had the, the father male young energy in the family. If it's a single parent family, mom and son, then it's the mom was taken on that masculine role. It can be directed at her. So, but what this almost always means is that somebody with this marking at some point in their life, the, the father figure or somebody in authority to them said, you can't do that. Don't do that. And they got angry. They got super, super angry. Not only did they get super, super angry, they expressed that anger. Mm -hmm. The ramifications of expressing that anger, they got thrown out of school, they got kicked out of the house, they got put in jail, was so severe and so traumatizing that they made a subconscious decision in that moment to never express that level of power again. Now, on one level, that seems like a good idea, except that this particular area 
is related to the liver energy, the wood energy of the body. The wood energy of the body is the energy of achievement and conquest. It's the energy that makes us move forward and become more successful in our lives. And it doesn't like to be constrained and it doesn't like to be told what to do. And so people with very pronounced areas in, this, in, the, face, in the face here usually don't, have, don't do well unless they're in charge, right? Um, or, or you give them a job where they're largely, they, they, they're, they're, they're their own boss and they can work unsupervised. But when you see a marking like this, what this means is that at some point in this person's future, that block that they've put on themselves is going to manifest as an inability to move forward, to move beyond a certain level in life. Because what they've literally done is taken a huge portion of their power, their personal power, their drive, their initiative, their sense of, of potential and purpose and cut it and put a block on it right then and there. So this is one of the most important markings to unpack and attack, as I like to say it, right? We got to resolve that anger. We've got to reframe the experience so that it's now empowering them and giving them permission to move forward. Because if they don't, that's going to keep them from becoming everything they could be and, and, and getting on their golden path. So that's a really important, important area when we look at people. Okay. When we look at the eyes and we start to, um, Look at this area here. And when I, and even though you wanted to talk about joy, and we talk about joy and sadness, we're not actually talking about the eye, but the eye is a great landmark. Um, so first and foremost, before we jump into sadness, joy starts at the outer canthus right here. And it starts and it travels up and, and usually terminates before or right at the edge of the eyebrow. Okay. If you look at somebody and that joy line is extending beyond the eyebrow, you're dealing with somebody who has tendencies to be bipolar, manic. Um, they're up at 2 a.m. in the morning tweeting. You know, these are people who have uh, a strong megalomaniacal traits to them. Yeah. So that, that's what the Chinese would call pathological joy. We yeah. would call it mania or bipolar disorder, hyperactivity, things of that nature. So again, and, and the Chinese concept of joy is not like this, oh, I just won the lottery type of excitement. The, the, the Chinese concept of, of, of true healthy joy is more like contentment. It's not nearly as you know, off the, on the adrenaline scale as, as what we might think of joy as being, okay? Now, we've talked about the, the energy of sadness. What we're really talking about is loss, the feeling of loss and, and how we process it. Loss and sadness all pass through the area on the face that's related to the lungs. So many times when you have a client or you yourself suffer from asthma, allergies, COPD, uh, emphysema, when you start to unpack the, 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 the issue, they'll start to cough, they'll start to cry because a, a lot of the energy of sadness, of loss goes to the lung, right? So, and it works both ways. If you have people who have undergone extreme amounts of trauma and grief, they, manifest, they may manifest some COPD disorder, right? If somebody comes down with, something that affects the lungs, they may become inordinately sad as a byproduct of that physical invasion of pathogens. So when we look at these areas, these are one of the big areas that we wanna clean up. And so looking at degrees, the first level of, of loss that we deal with is what we call sadness. This is usually transient. Uh, and usually when you look at these, these markings, I like, to, I like to use a, 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 a kind of a two ways of looking at it. What does their face look like when they're not expressing emotion? If these markings are obvious when they're not expressing emotion, they've got a lot of stored stuff, right? right? If they're only there when they're expressing a certain emotion, it's more buried. Okay. It's a little bit deeper inside. 
-hmm. If the line extends a little bit further to about just below the cheekbone, like the orbital bone here, you've got someone who's expressing some sorrow. Sorrow is um, a little bit longer term. It's usually yeah. a little yeah. bit more deep. Yeah. Uh, and, and whereas the sadness here can be very acute, the sorrow here is just a very chronic, almost chronic. always deep level background yep. um, kind of an energy to it. If it goes on, if, it, if it's not resolved and it continues to build, it goes through this, this continuum, so to speak, the line will start to crawl and grow down towards the jawline and it will still pass through this, this lung area. And now we're looking at grief. And these are, these are long-term, long-held sadnesses and sorrows that have not been processed. And they're rapidly moving towards becoming very toxic to the physical body. Mm -hmm. So the longer the line, the more long-term and the more, more mass has accumulated in that, in that particular area. Now, there's another area that's really important that, that goes in, in harmony with this, this particular area. And this is one we call lost love. Now I've seen lost loves appear in one of two ways. You have the classic way as in Lillian's diagram here, where it starts at the outer, the inner canthus and it just kind of trickles down like a tear, right? Sometimes the lost love line will start at the inner, inner canthus. It'll come across and then it'll come down. Hmm. Right now, when we talk about lost loves, the first thing that people think about is a person or a relationship, but it doesn't have to be. It could be an activity mm -hmm. or an ability. So the example that I often use with people is, let's say when you're, when you're um, 10, 15 years old, you know, you're early in life, you discover a love of horses and like all of a sudden you, you, you see a horse or you're put on a horse for the first time and your spirit just rushes into your body, your heart expands, it starts to sing. And every time you even think about a horse, you light up like a Christmas tree and you decide this is gonna be part of your life forever. You're right? speaking to my soul. <laughs> I was a writer as I grew up. So yeah. Okay. All right. So Ringo you know, Starr was his name. So cool. that's my horse. Right. And then maybe 10, maybe six or seven, eight years down the line, you meet somebody who for whatever reason hates horses, can't ride a horse, can't be near a horse, and because you love this person so much, you make the ultimate sacrifice and give up horses. Right. The moment you, 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 you willingly and voluntarily give up something that is supposed to be a part of your golden path, your reason for being here, you'll mark. Yeah, that's so. so part of, yeah. And so part of getting back on your golden path, and we have workshops for this. We don't, we don't sell products for it. It's something that can only be done in person or in a, in a, in a group setting. Um, is helping you to reclaim those lost loves, getting all of those things back into your life in the right integrated order so that you can get on and fulfill your mission and live your best version of yourself. But when you, but so this could be a person, but it could just as easily be an activity, you know, uh, to, to use another, another, another example, you know, maybe you're riding a horse and you get yeah. thrown and you get injured and you're told never ride horses again. And you want to ride horses, but you can't, well, you'll mark, you'll mark like that. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. And so when you see clients coming in and you see the markings in these areas, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't use it to prejudge the session, but don't be surprised when a lot of repressed sadness and grief and things of that nature come up. 100%. And I intuitively pick up on facial gestures and, and lines and imprints on the face. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's intuitive sense. And so moving on and we'll just kind of go to the to the other two around, you know, a lot of these anti-aging lines that women kind of think, let's turn again that into a different perspective. 
is, you know, the, the middle line in the middle of the, the bottom lip. You mean, you mean here? Yeah. So going, so that is going to be, um, humor. So having a line in the lower, um, in the middle of the lower lip. Yeah. That's usually somebody who likes a good joke, can tell a good joke, has a pretty yeah. decent healthy sense of humor. Love that. Uh, one of the things uh, that you want to be on the lookout for, and then this isn't part of what you asked for, but I'll just put it out there. The lips tell us a lot about how people, about boundaries and how people deal with pleasure. Okay. And so one of the things that, that uh, my teacher Lillian says in her book is that if you see somebody with a flaccid lower lip, uh, upper lip, um, you know, where the, the lip has kind of got this kind of a, yeah. a pucker to it, yeah. but it's flaccid without them actually having to exaggerate it. What you're seeing there a lot of times is somebody whose boundaries are very permeable. Hmm. Uh, their boundaries aren't very strong. And since we know predators have certain, they, a lot of what they do yes. is if they see yes. that, that lip, these people tend to attract a lot of unwanted yes. sexual attention and they don't push back. Yes. Makes so much okay. sense. So if you see, you see a lack of muscle tone in that upper lip, it's usually an indication of poor boundaries. Can now, I say something about that? Sure. I'm not judging Mm -hmm. If you go to a bar, mm -hmm. you will find many women sitting at the bar with placid yep. upper lips. I mean, yep. I'm not kidding you. No, I, I don't. I don't doubt you at all. I don't doubt you at no, all. I think that's so interesting. Okay. So analysis, these damn things right here, mm -hmm. I love them, but can you just kind of give me a little bit of. Yeah, I can tell you exactly what's going on. <laughs> Those are actually one of the, the lines that the Chinese actually want you to have. In, in Chinese medicine, the line that extends from the, the border of the alanesi or the side of the nostril and yeah. extends downward uh, towards that, the edge of that lip is known as a fa ling line in Chinese. Mm -hmm. We call that a purpose line. What this generally indicates is that you are doing the things you're supposed to be doing. The Chinese say, if you hit 50 and you don't have lines, you're doing something wrong. Ah, love it. So they love, love to see these nice, deep lines. Now, if they're excessively deep, we may have to look at how much you're doing or, or whatever's going on. But in, as a rule, when you have these nice, clean lines that extend from the border of the nose down, this is an indication that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're on, you're on track. Right. Yeah. So when I look at like, when I think about just kind of things I notice in, in my face is I definitely have um, these soft lines and I will notice myself just, I'm very intense. I'm a very intense person and I'm very overly yep. passionate. And I have, I have had a vision for what I'm supposed to do in my life, my entire life. And I've always followed that thread. Now the overworking part of that is something I'm figuring out in my midlife years, but mm -hmm. that, that, that annoyance, impatience, I'm going to raise my hand. I definitely have that in that divine. Purpose. I sure do. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I think it also in, in not to um, justify it, like having a very intuitive sensory to myself and a nine quick start. Um, I'm always living in the future and I'm 10 days ahead of where somebody's processing. So I have to self-regulate myself and just kind of come back into coherence of really being able, especially when you're doing trance work or any kind of energetic exchange of being really present. And so 
something I think many people deal with today is being able to be present, not only with themselves, but somebody else. But, Absolutely. Um, the internet hasn't helped us with that. The internet has actually significantly distorted our time sense. And by the way, when you see people with the 11s, as you like to call it, these people usually have a real problem. They understand the concept of divine timing, but yeah. they don't live by it. Yes, <laughs> you know? right. They're always trying to get something done or make something happen. And, and that's not how the universe works Yep. You know, in terms of the metaphysical side of things. Yeah, yeah. another thing that you, to, to bring relation to that, and, and I was listening to you at one point, is that, you know, um, this this piece about achievers and like over overachievers, chronic overachievers, where, mm-hmm. you know, you say that achievers know, um, you know, what it, what was it here? Um, I took notes on it so that I could remember and teach it. Is there two kind of high achieving women? One overachievers, and then there's chronically worked overachievers. Chronically overtrained. Yeah, overtrain it. They have a lot in common, but the achievers in life know they they are never done, which is the same as the chronically overworked. But there's always that there's always more to learn, and that the achievers know that they have enough to start. The chronic yeah. overachievers or chronically worked are overtraining, no matter. And they, you know, they know that there's always more to do, but they never get started because they can never finish anything. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's me. So. I'm well, here's the thing. Everybody's, everybody can fall into, into one or both categories at various times of their life. And mm-hmm. here's the thing with both, both, both categories of people start. We all come in with this desire to self-actualize. Yes. We, we want to be more than we are. We know we have these potentials that we want to tap into. And we know there's tons of things out there to learn. So let's go start learning. And so we start learning and we start learning and we start learning. And the more we learn, the less we know, right? That's like the more we learn, the more we realize there is to learn. And that's okay. There's a critical distinction that the achievers make that the chronically overtrained do not. And that is, it's simple, but it's not always easy to get. And that is this, is that however much they, as much more as there is to learn, they have enough to start doing rather than learning. So they do, they get out, they roll up their sleeves. They say, look, I know there's more to learn. I know I don't know half of it, but I have enough to get started. So I'm gonna mm-hmm. They're chronically overtrained. And I say that with love because I've fallen into that category too. Cause there's usually a fear behind it. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. But they have a belief that they'll start when they're done, when they've got everything they need, they'll start. Unfortunately, the more they learn, the more they realize they need, they think they need, so they never get done, so they never start. And so they get on this little hamster wheel of constantly learning. They can, you know, you, you, you sit them down and you start having a discussion. They can give you these amazing, eloquent, lucid discussions. They can quote you chapter and verse of all the books and all the nomenclature. They can watch somebody on a video and pick up all the parts and all the nuances. But when you ask them to get off their ass and actually do something, they, they find a reason not to. Mm-hmm. Right, but it's a, one more seminar and I'll be ready. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's usually the battle call. One more book and I'll be ready. Right, the the achievers say, nope. Let's start. I'll, I'll learn more as I go. Yeah, and so that's the bifurcation. And so you get people who talk a good game, right? But at the end of the day, what is what are they producing? They're producing more seminar invest seminar revenue for somebody else. Yeah. And that, that just is, it's really transformed my life in the last year and a half when I hit my burnout. Right. And, and my own, 
My declaration is I really am passionate about helping women lead boldly and burn brightly without burning out. And I believe that through the pause, I don't call it the pandemic, I call it the pause. The pause. um, You know, we all had to come to our reality of, fuck, do I really want to do this anymore? Do I really love this? Yep. We had an opportunity to make a choice and pivot. And we still do. Yes. Um, but the way that I was doing things was not sustainable. And there's a couple layers here. One part is declaring the fear underneath of it, right? Um, and those are things that, you know, I've, I've worked through and I'm still working through. But another part is, Um, I don't say I have ADHD, you know, from my hypnotherapy training and in my energetic work, a lot of times being in somnambulism, being in a trance triggered from previous trauma um, can oftentimes store a lot of rumination in the imagination. So if we can get out of the imagination and really start to understand that everybody has the same opportunity and you have to take control of your mind and you have to stop, breathe and shift and change in the direction that you choose that you Mm -hmm. want to go. And so for me, that is, I am a nine quick start. So Kathy Colby's done the cognitive studies with um, the Colby analysis. So instead of seven, I have ADHD, I'm a nine quick start and all my other things are three follow through three implementer. So yes, I can try to keep doing those things and doing everything with four different businesses. Like you can, you know, you can agree Mm -hmm. versus be smart, hire it out, stop beating yourself up that you can't conquer everything. And just, so I've tapped into the I Ching, right? Mm -hmm. And I've really started to systemize my day through flow, understanding my own unique flow and how I can stay in flow because it's always flow, right? So um, to me, that's just really one part responsibility. Number two is stored trauma um, in the body of, of hearing my mother say, someday our day will come, thinking my day is never going to come. I need safety right. and security and make a whole lot of money so I'm safe. So right. it's a process, but getting back into flow, tapping into your unique abilities, and then offshooting the things that you shouldn't be doing, it's a combination. Yeah. It's a combination of, of systematically removing what Scott Sonnen loves to call fear reactivity. Yeah in the body yep. and enhancing and following your joy because when you have that balance right when you when you know what brings you joy what lights your spirit up what what your mission is and you're doing things that are in harmony with that mission the spirit which is bigger than your body wants to come in it wants to embody more fully yes. and when it embodies more fully the body gets healthier the universe conspires to make you live longer because spirit is inherently ne- a negative entropy organ generator right? The more spirit is in your body, the more healthy you become, the longer you live. Um, And, you know, and and you can, you can see this in nature. What, what kind of house breaks down faster? One that has people in it or one that doesn't? One that has people in it. No, actually it's the opposite. Really? Yeah. Houses that don't have a family living actually break down faster because of the organizational principle. Energy in it. The spirit in the house. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've talked to several builders. I said, yeah, you can let a, like a, a house sit for like three months, four months, five months, go back, all kinds of shit's messed up, dilapidated, wow. deteriorated. Same house, family living in it, not doing anything. House is great. That's right? amazing. Body is the, same, the body is the same way. So when people have trauma, right, the body becomes an unhappy place to be. The spirit doesn't want to come in. And that's why if you've ever watched, after you've cleared somebody's, traumas their eyes are bright 
there's there's a glow under their skin yep. the reason is because the moment you clear out that pain the spirit floods into the body and they get healthier mm-hmm. you ever seen someone who's undergone trauma before they were happy now there's like nobody home the lights are literally out because they're out here somewhere totally right yep. and so when when again the, the chinese understood this with their feng shui and the different aspects of that but yes the the, the same principle the house will break down much more rapidly if nobody's living in it I love that. I love that visual. It's so rich. And it's, you know, and even your ability to communicate with the outer world, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, the outer world has certain frequencies. You know, I believe that evil spirits kind of hang out in that frequency and then the Mm -hmm. goody people hang over in the good frequencies. And there's a dialogue there that you can start to tap into uh, when you enter into that, which I've experienced, which is a lot of fun. So that's so cool. I just love it so much. So um, another piece I wanted to kind of bring in there is, you know, the power of neuroplasticity and we'll kind of end up, uh, end here. But, um, you know, a lot of things too of the overachievers and overworking and chronic and, you know, a lot of this, you know, manifestation stuff that we think that we have to like be thinking that thought all the time and we need to be in that state. And that's what's going to cause a neuroplasticity. And, you know, studies show that, you know, if you can do what you're doing, set it in motion and just leave it there. And the studies show that when you act, when you're activating it, 20 minutes of deep theta rest to turn off that focus thinking yes. actually speeds the neuroplasticity. So for those that are obsessing about this whole thing about manifestation, you always have to feel the feelings and be in the vision. You got to let it go. And it'll that happen. Has, less you faster. have to do that. There's, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. You have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super there's, important. There's no other way. It's like, it would be the equivalent of, first of all, it's exhausting to hold that vibration. You're not made to hold a vibration like that constantly because we're, human beings are designed to cycle through. But the yeah. other, the, the, the metaphor would be, you know, you call a waiter or waitress over, you place the order. And as soon as they walk away, you grab a hold of them and they can never deliver the order to the kitchen. Right. I wonder why you're not getting your order. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the same idea. You know, interestingly though, just a little fun factoid, that, that idea of the, the 20 minutes of theta or sleep, after works just as well for athletic performance as well. Yep. Yep. So, you know, for, for those like, you know, manifest, get into that vision, feel all the feelings, do the work. Right. Um, but make sure that you let it go and that you just trust. And then you're working with your RAS, your reticular activating system, and just looking for the evidence. Right. So why is right? Your, your RAS will find the Mm -hmm. elements in the environment that move you towards it. It's designed to do that. It's designed to look for and pull information into your awareness that is in harmony with what's going with your inner environment. Um, in fact, if you guys get a chance, there was an, I don't know how old this article is. I have a course I call Get Lucky for Life. It's not what you think, or maybe it is, right? Um, and it was back in the, I guess it was the early part of the 21st, 2010, 2015, no, about 2012, something like that. I wanted to know how to create more luck in people's lives. And I, I came across an article in Psychology Today that said there were five psychological characteristics that all lucky people have in common. And it goes right to the reticular activating system. The very first one was they self-identify as being lucky, right? And they did, and what they did was the studies were actually done in England. It was really kind of interesting what they did. They broke people up into three groups. They had a group that was a control. They had people who considered themselves lucky, people who considered themselves unlucky, they rented a restaurant on a weekend, hired actors to play the patrons. They put a 20 pound note on the floor and they would send these groups in independently of each other. And they would 
count how long it took and how many people found the 20 pound note. What do you mean by a 20 pound note? Like a $20 bill? Like a $20 bill. Okay. I say pounds because it was in England. But, uh, but so, and they would calibrate. And as you can probably intuit, the average people found it about 50% of the time, give or take. The lucky people, 100% of the people found it pretty much. And as far as we can tell, the unlucky people are still looking for the restaurant. Yeah, they can't even find the front door. <laughs> but but what, what you're seeing there is a perfect example of that reticular activating system. Whatever you've got going on in your body, the body feelings that you have change your perceptual filters, which is your reticular activating system. And it's going to scan the environment for things that are in harmony with that. So if, you're, if, you, if you have an identity, a self-created identity as a lucky person, you're not just going to, ah, okay, my inside I'm lucky, so I'm going to find things in life that my external environment to match what's going on, right? Same $20 bill, same restaurant. Why didn't these unlucky people see it? Because their worldview wouldn't, couldn't hold that. And so that reticular activating system, we call it the emotional refractory period because I, I kind of got my approach to it from Ekman. Yeah. But it's the same mechanism. Yep. I remember Eckner. Man, he's a long time ago. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I love it so much. And then the last thing I wanted to go over is because so many people, you know, I call it a lot of positivity porn, um, the visual the visualization boards. I'm like, just mm-hmm. stop ruining all of these Vogue magazines, right? Like just (laughs) stop the madness. Um, You know, and it's, and we've heard this example now a lot. Like, you know, if you really were activating the RAS and you were back to this example, I'm not going to remind myself like I'm, um, I'm overweight by putting sticky notes everywhere saying my body is really skinny. And I go through a thought ladder with a lot of my clients. It's like, let's start with neutrality. I have Mm -hmm. a normal stomach my stomach looks like a lot of other women's stomach. Cool. Right. I can sit with this for a few days. Sure. And then we'll start to shift the energy in that. But I wanted to go back to um, just the tool. And I wanted to understand the framework a little bit more about uh, what was the image cycling energy healing with Bill Bankston's work. Image cycling um, was a technique that Bill created um, to do one specific thing to distract the healer so they wouldn't mess up the healing that if you if you ask bill what image cycling was designed for why he designed it that's what he'll tell you the side effect of it was though that whatever you were cycling tended to manifest so it was very bizarre because in, in bill's in bill's view of healing and bill probably has the most documentation as on energy healing and he has an astronomical cure rate of curing rats bred to die from cancer, deliberately injected with a cancer that is 100% lethal. He teaches people who don't believe in the method to do the healing and the rats get cured. Double blind animal controlled trials. And um, what's funny is if you take a rat that was cured through this method and you try and you re-inject them with cancer, the cancer doesn't take. Wow. It's, you can go to bankstonresearch.com, all of his studies, all the research is there. But when, if you ask him about the image cycling process, he would say he designed it specifically to distract the person's conscious mind so it wouldn't mess up the healing because the healing and the image cycling are two parallel but separate processes. The side effect of which is for whatever reason, when you cycle these things this way, 
the way he teaches you to do it. Actually, there's a lot of ways you can do it. And one of the, and in fact, Bill's entire manual for how to do image cycling will fit on a business card. Could you walk us through it? Because I just have in here to look at, you know, your, you know, imaginal act and then to repeat it faster and faster. Okay. Well, there's, if you think about it, um, well, here, I'll share my screen. Maybe I I might have, I might have, um, hold on a second. Let me stop sharing this. I might have a template that I I taught at a mastermind the other day that might help people with this. Um, I know I had it. What did I do with it? Um, Well, I'll just do it again. That's all right. I'll just, I'll just start another page. So the way image cycling actually works is you have what I call manifestation one, manifestation two, and, man- and manifestation three. Now, I do it this way because this can be a very confusing process. So this is how I want you to think about it. Let's say I want to build a six figure business or a seven figure business, wherever you're at. Okay. So my first manifestation is I want to build a six figure business. Right? So maybe I create a mental movie using the primary encoding system of having that six figure risk. Maybe I'm writing, maybe I'm, 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 put, I'm depositing a six figure check in the bank. Maybe I'm buying something cool with that, with that six, you know, the six figure business or, or something like that. Let's go seven figures. Cause I, I don't like to think small. Right. Uh, but I've got my seven, you know, and I, I'm just, I'm just imagining what my life would be like with that seven figure business. Right. Then I'm going to ask myself a question. If I got this, if I had the seven figure business, right? What would I do then? Well, maybe I'd buy a house. So manifestation two is a result of manifestation one. Are you showing your screen? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, my bad. I thought I was, one second. That's okay. Okay, so my first manifestation is what? the seven figure business. So I make a mental movie of me in my seven figure business, writing a check, you know, getting paid seven figures, signing a contract on whatever it is. Right. And then I ask myself the magic question. Well, if I had that, what would I do next? You know, as a result. Right. And that might be buy a brand new house. Right. And so I'll make a mental movie of my brand of me moving into my brand new house using VACOP. Right. And I want to make it awesome. The, 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 the most important piece about this process is it's got to bring you tremendous selfish pleasure. If you're not as hedonistic as humanly possible, you're selling yourself short on the power of this process. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Manifestation three is you can probably do it. Okay, I got my seven-figure business. And once I've had that seven-figure business, I'm going to take some of that money. I'm going to buy me a brand new house. And then what am I going to do? Well, I might buy more houses. I might buy a vacation home in the Bermuda or, some, or Bahamas or something, right? I might 
uh, do a world, you know, uh, trip around the world. Doesn't matter what it is, but each one is a direct extension of the first one, of the previous one. You follow me so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, so I have these three movies that I've created. I'm going to collapse them down to either a keyword yeah, or phrase or phrase or symbol that is a gestalt yep. of this three this three level sequence yep that is all pleasure based that is carrying past the original thing that I want that becomes the first entry on the image cycling list so you literally do this process for everything on your list. And when Bill teaches, he has people doing, you know, I'm sorry, um, two, three, all the way down to 20. And then, and I think the, I think the, the, the record as of the last time I talked to Bill, I think one person had like 72 distinct items on their list. So really, this is just getting very, very narrowed down and very, very particulate on, okay, well, what will that do for you? Okay, well, then what, when you manifest that, then what? Yeah, what, well, the, magic, the magic is in the creation and the meditation on the list before the cycling actually begins. Okay. So once you've got this and you've compressed it down to a key word and you have all of your entries, right, we'll just, right, we'll just copy this. Right, so I've got my list of 20 things, right? Then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take that list and I'm going to meditate on each entry. And I'm just gonna live those movies over and over again for five full minutes. This is the part most people don't do. Ah, it takes time. Mm -hmm. So, because A, it's the, just creating the list, if you use this three level process and then sandwiching it down to a phrase or the symbol. So you're, you're priming the subconscious, not only with the first thing you want, but you're moving that energy beyond it. Which yeah, yeah, if you've yeah. ever done any martial arts, if you've ever, if you're ever taught how to break a board in martial arts, they teach you not to focus on the surface of the board, yep. but to focus through the board. And when your energy flows through something, it breaks through barriers. So yep. you can take that metaphor. So I take each of these, uh, entries on my image cycling list, I spend three to five minutes just having fun and imagining what it'd be like to have all that good stuff and linking it to the symbol. When I'm done with my list, I can put the list in a drawer and not worry about it anymore. Now I just rapidly cycle through each of the keywords, symbols at ever increasing rates of speed. Do you just look at them or do you have to memorize them? It helps to memorize them. Okay. Okay. But if you need your list, you need your list. But what, again, but you keep cycling faster and faster and faster. And here's, here's the key heuristic I follow for as long as it feels good. Yeah. And then once it's done, done, it done. done, and then right? make a new list. Yep. Right. And what you do is you do what we call list maintenance. So let's say um, you're cycling and you're cycling, and you're cycling. And you're the first thing you man. And again, they don't, they won't always manifest linearly, like in the order you created them. 
because the universe isn't linear that way. But let's say just for, for an example, uh, I've got five, I've got 20 things and, and the second thing on my list manifests. The first thing that has to happen is the minute you manifest something on your list, you got to take it off. Yep. Because if you keep cycling on something you've already got, in order for you to have something, you need to lose it. Yep, exactly. So you'll actually delete it from your list. Now, one of the things that's, that, that kind of holds people back sometimes when they're doing this is that um, they're afraid if they actually succeed in manifesting something, they're going to be, and they don't like it, they're stuck with it. No, mm -hmm. you're never stuck. If you manifest this, you can manifest something else. Change it. Right? Right. So one of the cool ways that I teach my students to do this is I have them create a five, a five or five to 10 uh, micro list. I have them hold a bottle of water in there. I have to take two bottles of water. I have them take one bottle, put it under their chair. I have them hold the other bottle in their left hand. And all they're going to do is hold it. And then I guide them through a cycling session, usually five to 10 minutes. And then at the end of that session, I have them, take the water from underneath their chair, take a swig, have them sip the water in their hand. And I have them say, temperature doesn't count. Tell me about the water you were holding. And the water's always changed. The water's always different, right? We call this Eucharistic healing or Eucharistic charging. But it demonstrates in five minutes of cycling that you can change the molecular uh, tension in water. And, and that just, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, if they've, if they've done the process, shit just starts manifesting. It won't always be gentle. I got to warn you, you know, if you want to manifest that seven figure business, you may have to lose that six, that, that cushy five figure business that you've been getting, collecting a steady paycheck from yeah. the universe. Yeah. It, the, the system is not always gentle, yep. but it is the most powerful, most reliable uh, engine of transformation I have come across and I've come across a couple that are super powerful. This is right up there in the top three. Wow. Right. So, um, and you can, and I've, my, the doctorate in front of my name was a result of image cycling mm. okay. because when I tried to get my doctorate, they told me I wasn't qualified after auditing my transcripts, like 27 times, they told me, no, you don't have enough credits yet. You've got to go back and get more credits. And, I'm, and, I, and I, hit, I hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. And after a while, your neurology evolves to you interface so, so fluidly with the non-local universe that you just, my mantra is something will happen. And, yeah. and the cycling just happens, right? But um, after a year of trying to, to get those credits, hitting one roadblock after another, I said, you know what? I put it aside. I said, something will happen. And I just put it on my cycling list. A year to the day that the school told me I wasn't, I didn't have enough credits. I got a phone call from the recruiting office at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. It says, David, we were just doing a, a, a what's the word? Um, routine review of transcripts. Yeah. And we discovered that we made a mistake on your transcripts. You don't actually, you aren't actually nine credits short. You're nine credits over. Would you like to join our program? Unbelievable, David. Oh, I just love it. And, and you know, I'm just... I celebrate your life so much. It's just such a joy to be with you. It's such a joy to see you transform so many lives. And um, you've really kind of brought this, this love of learning again back into, you know, the hypnosis. And sometimes that world can get a little, mm. yeah. um, so it's just, I love the energy. The energy work is what lights me up because it, it works. 
Um, there's nuances to it, but it's personalized to you. And, and so thank you so much for your time today. I, um, there's something I always, I always ask at the end of a podcast and it's, I know you're a very busy person, but you know, outside of all of the stuff, right? This is how you live your life. And I understand that, um, it's part of you, but outside of all of that, related, not related, what is something that in the Awaken Beauty podcast that you've, that you've deeply awakened to as of late that you could share with us today? There's a couple of things that come to mind. A, mm -hmm. is that there is true magic mm -hmm. in every man and woman and child on this planet. And if people could see themselves the way I see them, mm -hmm. um, you, you, you'd, really, you'd really realize that. The corollary to that is, you know, because of the, the life choices I've made, uh, I, like I said, I never, I never planned on being a healer or a therapist. It was just not on my radar. It's just something you evolve to. It's not something you choose. It's something that chooses you. Exactly. Each and every one of you has a divine path in this life. Actually, and there's many roads to, to manifest that path. Follow your joy. Because, and regardless of what society or culture says you should or shouldn't have or what you should or shouldn't like, follow the light in your heart. Follow what lights you up on the inside. Because after having looked into the hearts and minds of literally thousands of people in my sessions, every time you, you peel back those layers, you see the same thing. Mm -hmm. A scared little child, yep. desperate to be loved and accepted, terrified of being alone. Yep. And, and when you give them that, and, you, and, and there's only one entity in the universe that can do that, and that is the person themselves, your own spirit. The way you bring more of your spirit into your body is through following your joys, regardless of what the people outside of you say. Um, when more of that spirit comes into your body, you become the best version of yourself. You bring your light into the world, and the world changes starting with yours. And so when you give the person that understanding that they are loved, they're always loved, they're always accepted, they're always good enough, they're never alone, they can accomplish miracles, miracles of healing, miracles of extra personal transformation, interpersonal transformation, and the world becomes a brighter place. And so, you know, there's no, you know, there's no obstacle, there's only lessons to be learned. Mm -hmm. you know, things that are put in your path to help you become better at who you're, you're destined to be. So just follow your joy and remember everything is there to teach you something. So true. So, so true. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate, man, the time, you know, this being with you and learning and, and I, I don't think people realize, but they're actually shutting things as they listen to us here today, which is so fun to be a part of that process. Um, and so I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for your time. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I will be sharing all the goodies, your YouTube channel, your website in the show notes. Perfect. And, uh, is there anything else that you would want to leave with us today? It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to serve and, and to be amongst such amazing and spiritual beings. And I look forward to working with all of you very, very soon. Good night and God bless. Sure, I'll see you on Clubhouse soon. So, all righty, awesome. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining the Awaken Beauty Podcast. And as I always say, until next time, stay stained, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Thanks so much.
Well, hello, Awaken Beauty. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Were you inspired? Please leave a comment or your own personal aha moment so others can capture exactly what you did. Also, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're interested in high quality natural products for your hair, skin, and wellness, including organic CBD, please visit evokebeauty.com. Again, that is evokebeauty.com, E-V-O-Q-Beauty.com. And until next time, darling, stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Sexy back.